Welcome to Living Well with Dr. Peg, where psychologist Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark explores a variety of mental health, wellness, and safety topics and shares biblically-based psychological strategies for living well and staying safe. Now, here is your host of Living Well with Dr. Peg, Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark. Hey, listeners, great to be back with you for another episode of Living Well with Dr. Peg. I'm your host, Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark. And we're coming to you from Denver, Colorado. Uh, we're here every Thursday at One Mountain on KLZ 560 AM and online at drpegradio.com. And we're brought to you by our sponsor, SSI Guardian, who set the new standard in advanced safety education and training. Contact them today at ssiguardian.com and tell them Dr. Peg sent you. Well, my guest today is cybersecurity expert Armando Say. And Armando is currently the Vice President for Business Development and Cyber for SSI Guardian. And his technology experience includes finance, insurance, banking, manufacturing, Department of Defense, and the intelligence community. Armando Say, thanks so much for being on the program with me today. Welcome. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. Well, wonderful. Well, you know, Armando, before we really dig into the topic, let's get a good definition of what we even mean by cybersecurity, because that's kind of a buzzword that we throw around uh, without possibly fully understanding what is cyber cybersecurity and why is it so important. Fantastic. That's a great way to start the conversation because the word is monolithic in many in many senses, depending on what the context is that you're talking about. So. But, but essentially, at the core, cybersecurity is protecting any asset that has information or has a valuable function. So if you think about yourself personally, it's your financial data, your identity, your personal details that you use to transact your everyday life or that could be used to transact portions of your life on behalf of someone else. Mm. If it's critical infrastructure, it's the information that controls the critical infrastructure, such as uh, the, the code and the programming that protects and manages nuclear power plants and electrical grids and things like that. Wow. But it's simple if it's that kind, of, that kind of data. So if it's an airplane, it's the software and controls that control the airplane. So you see it, it, it it's, it's the things that are of value um, that could go awry if they were to be compromised mm -hmm. or, uh, or absconded with uh, data exfiltration as we say in the industry in terms of stealing data. Wow. So it really is relevant for us as individuals, but also just our way of life uh, when you talk about in infrastructure. And so when we have a cyber breach, it is so, uh, it can be such a, an invasion of privacy, maybe even worse than having your stuff stolen because your stuff can be replaced. But when you're talking about cyber breaches, it's just so insidious up to and including uh, even your identity. And uh, Armando, I interviewed um, Frank Abagnale um, recently, he was in town here in Denver, and if you remember Frank Abagnale, his life was portrayed in the movie Catch Me If You Can, starring Leonardo DiCaprio. And one of the things I want to talk with you about and get your response to is I asked Frank about his motivation. Uh, so someone who was um, engaged in fraudulent activity and was a con man from a young age. What's the mindset of someone who commits these cyber crimes and identity theft? So I want to play that interview for you and then uh, get your response to that. So let's take a listen. So Mr. Frank Abagnale, thank you so much for joining me today and welcome to Living Well with Dr. Pegg. Thank you for having me. 
It's my pleasure. Well, you have such a remarkable story that was captured in the movie Catch Me If You Can, starring Leonardo DiCaprio and Tom Hanks. And uh, you, you were a con man and uh, engaged in many fraudulent activities from forging checks to even impersonating an airline pilot and a lawyer and a doctor. Um, and spoiler alert, uh, you, you did get caught and uh, you've since shared what you learned about fraud to help the FBI and help everyday people protect themselves against fraud. And, and before you share some tips for all of us uh, to help protect ourselves from fraud, I'd be curious to know about what motivated you as a young man to go to the elaborate lengths that you did as a con man. I think just the fact that I was an adolescent, I ran away from home at 16 because my parents were get divorced and the judge asked me to choose between which parent I wanted to live with. I didn't feel that was a choice I could make, so I ended up on the streets in New York City and a lot of kids, unfortunately, in the 60s ran away, but they got into Haight-Ashbury, the hippie scene, the drug scene. I quickly realized I had to find a way to support myself. I, the only asset I had is I looked much older than 16. so. Mm -hmm. I altered my date of birth on my driver's license to make myself 10 years older or 26 years old. I started writing checks where in the beginning I had a little money in the account. When it ran out, I found it so easy to do that I kept writing checks. And everything I did from that point on was really because I saw it as a way of uh, getting an airline pilot's uniform and being able to go into a bank as a pilot, and it was easier to cash checks because the uniform had respect and people uh, were more apt to cash a check for me and then I realized I could ride on planes for free and I think being an adolescent I had no fear of being caught I really didn't think about all these things and rationalize them or I probably wouldn't have done uh, half of them and uh, I was very fortunate you know I served time in the French prisons I served time in Swedish prisons I was brought back to the United States and given 12 years in federal prison I served four of those 12 years at a federal prison in Virginia but I was very fortunate that, like every American, you get a second chance, and my government uh, offered to take me out of prison on the condition I'd go to work with the government for the remainder of my sentence or until my parole had been completed. Uh, I agreed, and I'm, I'm happy to say that I've spent 42 years with the FBI. I just left the FBI Academy to come here to Colorado today. Uh, I'm uh, travel around the world trying to help educate both businesses, corporations, governments, as well as consumers about all the scams that are out there and how people uh, need to learn to protect themselves and give them the necessary tools to do that. So this is my fourth year with ARP. We've been to 38 states. We go to about 15 states a year. Uh, we reach tonight. We have over 800 people coming this evening. I was in Fargo, North Dakota. We had 1,000 people the other night. So people really want to know how about these scams work and how to protect themselves. And so it's all about education, which is the most powerful tool to fighting crime. And that's what I try to do is give people the tools to do that with. Yeah, absolutely. And with all that firsthand experience and knowledge, uh, kind of into the psyche and the mind of, of the con man. And so um, it's so fascinating to me as a psychologist to uh, hear your story as an adolescent and kind of that that sense of there's no consequences I can get away with this and and actually thinking it through even though adolescents have this reputation for being so impulsive um, but you you put a lot of effort and time and thought into your strategies now with there that was, mm -hmm. yeah there was no fear of you know if I was out in front of a bank and I was going to go in and cash a $500 check I didn't sit there and say to myself here's the plan I'm I'm going to go in and say this, and if they say this, I'll do this. 
I just went in and did it. When I look back now and I think to myself, had I been a little older, had I been maybe 25 years old and started doing this, I probably wouldn't have done half the things I did because I would have convinced myself that probably it wouldn't have worked. And how, how old were you when you finally did get caught and spent time I, I started, in prison? Yeah, started at 16 and was arrested at 21, so mm. it all ended at 21. Wow. And that's about the time that uh, neuropsychologists say that frontal lobe is, is uh, <laughs> developing, so that makes sense. Right. Well, with your experiences um, and, and uh, your whole career now uh, helping folks protect themselves from fraud, what are the most common fraudulent activities that we need to be aware of? Of and, and take active, proactive steps to protect ourselves from? There are so many scams out there now, and they're getting so sophisticated. So, you know, we have, for example, the grandparent scam, which is very common, where uh, your phone rings, you go over to the caller ID, and it says it's the police department, so you assume it is the police department, but caller ID is very easy to manipulate. You pick it up, they tell you that they have your grandson in custody for drunk driving. They give you the grandson's name. They tell you what kind of car he was driving. They explain to you that his girlfriend was with him and what her name is. And the grandparents, of course, know the girlfriend, the parent's name. And eventually they simply say, your grandson needs to post bail. If he doesn't post bail, he'll have to spend the weekend in jail. He asks us not to call the parents but to call you. And, of course, the grandparent says, well, no, I'll do that. How do I do that? Just give me a credit card. Every scam, and I've written about so many of them over the years, no matter where you are in the world, every scam, whether it be Internet scams, sweepstakes scams, romance scams, every scam comes down to two things. At some point, I'm going to ask you for money or I'm going to ask you for personal information, Social Security number, date of birth, bank account number, credit card number. So I always tell people that's the red flag. So you might have a someone you met on the internet and you got into a romance with them you never met them personally you're lonely so you like the conversation you have you even speak with them on the phone and it's been going on for several months it's great but then one day you ask them well why don't you come visit me well i have to have an operation and it's thirty five thousand dollars and i don't have the money uh... well i could loan you the money so the minute money comes up or information that's where you need to realize that uh, before you part with your money, you have to verify who you're really dealing with and who you're talking to. And it's so easy to simply pick up the phone book, go to the blue pages, look up the police department, call right back and say, did you place this call to me? And, of course, they're going to say no. Mm. You just have to stop and take a moment to verify. Well, that, that's such um, practical advice. I've, I've received messages um, about fraud alerts on my credit card and really had to do a little digging to make sure it was truly from the credit card company before I even called back. And so uh, when we're receiving calls and receiving emails, that's when we're most vulnerable. But what about when we reach out and call our credit card company or we're calling um, somewhere that we need to pay money? What are some safeguards we can take when we're the ones reaching out? Well, just make sure that if I'm going to call the credit card company, I'm calling the 800 number on the back of the credit card. I want to make sure I'm speaking to the credit card company. They may ask me some personal security questions to verify that I am who I say I am calling in on the phone. Um, but again, if uh, before I would uh, give any money uh, to one of those things, I would make sure that I know who I'm properly speaking to. So right now there's a lot of calls that go out and they solicit for mortgages with great rates. They even advertise in the newspaper. 
and people call that 800 number, which is nothing but a boiler room, so you are calling in, and they're telling you we're offering this rate, and we'll refinance your house for you. And, of course, they're hoping you say yes, and then, of course, they have to follow that up with an application, so they need to know your name, social security number, date of birth, where you're employed, what your earnings are. Those types of personal information you want to be very careful about giving out, even when you make the call, mm-hmm. unless you absolutely know that that is a legitimate company you're talking to. Wow. And what, what advice can you give to parents and to young people about uh, identity theft, fraud, especially when online, on social media, and the Internet? Okay, very good question. And I'm not, I'm not personally on any social media whatsoever, but... I tell young people all the time, if you post your photograph up on social media, someone will come and snatch that photo, that image of you, and they will use that on false identification to be you. There are many uh, uh, photo uh, engineering sites that allow you to use facial recognition like Tat, Find a Face, that if you're on Facebook, they can match that to your Facebook page, take a picture of you, and find you on Facebook. Now, if you tell someone on Facebook where you were born, and your date of birth, that's 98% of stealing your identity. So when we ask identity thieves, where do you get the majority of your information, they always say from someone's Facebook page and that the only two things I need to know is where you were born and your date of birth. All the rest of it I can find out from there. So I tell people never to post that on Facebook. Also, I tell young people to be very careful what you say and what you post on Facebook. So. If the government's going to hire you tomorrow, they're going to go to your Facebook page. And if there's a picture of you nude on the beach with a bunch of drug paraphernalia all over you and wine bottles and whiskey bottles, no, they're probably not going to hire you. If you're 12 and you make a racial slur about something on Facebook, your employer's going to read it when you're 21. So once you put it up there and post it, uh, whether you remove it, erase it, close your account, it is always retrievable. So you have to stop and think before you make a statement or post something on Facebook. Do you want someone to read that five, six years from now? Mm-hmm. And that's good advice for the adults as well as the young exactly. people. Frank Abagnale, thank you so much for being with me today and sharing your expertise with our listeners. Thank you, Doctor. It was a pleasure talking with you. Thank, thank you, you so much. Well, that was Frank Abagnale, whose real-life story was portrayed in the movie Catch Me If You Can, starring Leonardo DiCaprio. And Frank now works with the FBI fighting against identity theft and cyber attacks. And I recorded this interview with him during his recent visit to Denver. And I'm also speaking by phone today with cybersecurity expert Armando Say. And Armando, uh, Frank Abagnale shared something I thought was really important. He said that educating yourself is the best way to fight cybercrime. Talk about that. Absolutely. Um, Cybercrime, most particularly ones that involve identity theft, are accomplished through what's called ceasing schemes or social engineering schemes. Basically, information that's publicly available about you in terms of newspaper articles, Facebook, Twitter posts, uh, are collected and aggregated together. Uh, to say, okay, this is who this individual is, and now I'm going to craft a personal message that looks very legitimate to the extent that the letterhead and telephone numbers and the logo can look very legitimate to fool you into providing even more data mm-hmm. about yourself that can be used to steal your identity. So one of the ways to educate yourself is to monitor uh, the warnings that are available generally from the Department of Homeland Security, the FBI, and there's an organization called the U.S. CERT. Those organizations publish their data publicly 
Well, and there's a number of others as well. Basically, indicating you know what are the latest phishing scams and schemes that are being perpetrated against certain segments of the population, whether it's banking, insurance, uh, the elderly, uh, you know, other demographics are being used. So that's one way to educate yourself um, about what's going on. So that way, when you get one of these emails or you get something that looks very legitimate, you question it. You know, the first thing you ought to do is question mm-hmm. anything you get that's asking for personal information. Don't be, don't race to click on it or race to provide information. Um, so these, these um, basically target certain demographics. Yeah. And if you've applied for a loan and somehow they know that, yeah. they will send information. Hey, you've been approved for this loan. Give mm. me this data and then I'll respond back to you, right? right. But given this personal data, then it's used to further uh, perpetrate their crimes yes. or begin to build on their crimes. And that's what Frank was talking about. He said there are two important red flags when they ask for personal information and or they ask for money. Uh, and so this, this could happen where someone's knocking at your door with a clipboard pretending to be selling, you know, siding for your aluminum siding for your house, but they need to approve you for their special financing. And we often voluntarily give up this information um, unwittingly. Uh, that they're going to be using ultimately probably to either steal our identity or steal our money. Um, So when we come back, uh, Armando, I want to talk more about these two red flags, how they steal our personal information or ask for money, and how we can protect ourselves uh, from those scams, um, especially in cyberspace. Uh, We're getting these um, emails, as you talked about, emails that look really official, um, they, they happen to be, you know, the actual bank that we bank at. They happen to be our actual social media account, and we feel like they're legitimate. So when we come back, we'll hear more from Armando Say, cybersecurity expert. Stay with us. Be back. Studies show that safety greatly impacts student learning and a teacher's ability to do what they do best. Be it broken furniture, a leaking roof, or more serious threat of violence, the 21st Century Safe School by School Specialty addresses school safety from the emotional, social, and physical perspective. Don't wait another moment. Call 877-878-5800 or visit ssiguardian.com. Threats at our schools and workplace continue at an alarming rate and require an innovative approach to overall institutional safety. A 21st century safe school needs the right training, the right equipment, and the correct action plan to achieve a future-ready, safe learning environment. SSI Guardian's comprehensive, evidence-based solutions and Tier 1 security consulting is the only active shooter training in America with an accredited CEU. Don't trust your safety to just anyone. SSI Guardian is the only choice. Visit us at SSIGuardian.com. You can learn a lot about yourself and God from a dog. When her children asked for a dog, this mom got them gerbils. So imagine their surprise, and hers, when she adopted an abandoned dog that she met in Dallas, Texas, just one day after her divorce. In a way that only God could orchestrate, her spur-of-the-moment decision to take in a little dog she named Dallas was just the beginning of a seven-year journey that transformed her life. 
and taught her to see herself and God in a whole new light. Read Doggy Tales, Lessons on Life, Love, and Loss I Learned from My Dog, a delightful and heartwarming book by psychologist Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark. Part memoir, part Christian inspiration, Doggy Tales is a must-read for anyone who wants to learn to recognize God's voice, even in the most unlikely places. You'll laugh, you'll cry, and you'll love Doggy Tales. Go to drpegradio.com books to purchase your copy today. Right, welcome back, everyone. This is Living Well with Dr. Peg, and I'm your host, Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark. And believe it or not, there's only a few months left in 2018. Are you far from accomplishing the goals that you had in mind for this year? Do you want to get unstuck now and establish new habits that will move you forward? Well, if you're finally ready to make the changes you've been talking about all year, contact me today to take advantage of my unique approach to coaching that gets results by using the latest psychological research and behavior change strategies. All coaching is done by telephone, making it easy and efficient to experience lasting change in your life. Go to drpegradio.com today to schedule a complimentary session to learn how results coaching will benefit you. Well, I'm speaking with Armando Say, and he's cybersecurity expert and vice president for business development and cyber for SSI Guardian. And we're talking about cybersecurity. Uh, we heard a, uh, a, seg- a clip earlier uh, of a recorded interview that I did with security consultant Frank Abagnale, whose life was portrayed by Leonardo DiCaprio in the movie Catch Me If You Can. And Armando Say is um, helping us to understand some of the things that Frank spoke about. And Armando, thanks again so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so let's talk about this. Um, The red flags that Frank said we all need to be on the lookout for is when someone asks for our personal information or they ask for money, and that could be in person or in cyberspace. And they're pretty clever and creative about how they um, kind of impersonate some of the legitimate businesses that we interact with. Uh, to get that that uh, information. So, what are what are some of those um, strategies? Is that what what they refer to as phishing? P H I S. That is a yeah. Yes, yeah, so it's one of the strategies. It's mm-hmm. phishing. There's another strategy called smishing, <laughs> which is using your cell phone uh, in terms of sending you messaging and texting. Mm. Um, that's becoming very popular. You know, cell phones are pretty ubiquitous in our society, and we're using them to pay for bills. That you know. Coffee shop. We're mm-hmm. using them to, you know, to uh, get information, financial information. You know, it's a mobile way of continuing to maintain contact with our financial and social health, right? So, thieves of cyber criminals, just, you know, realize that way. I don't have to wait for you to sit at your computer. I can get you in your car, or you're at a coffee shop, or you're at work, mm-hmm. or you're at school. And if you respond to one of these phishing or smishing uh, campaigns. Um, and thinking that they're legitimate uh, inquiry, uh, then you're going to provide information that then can be used to steal your identity. But let's not just focus on that. That's the most popular technique of speaking, you know, whether you're an individual or whether you're a corporation. Any statistic that you'll review or can see that's available out in the industry today will continuously say that phishing is the number one uh, what we call threat vector in the industry. Why? Because it targets the individual. Mm-hmm. The individual within an organization or within someone's family is the weakest link. You have you know, software and things that are supposed to protect you and you know, firewalls and things like that. But if you can get to the individual and that individual will give you what they need, none of that stuff matters because mm-hmm. you've circumvented all of these <laughs> other 
wow. in software and computer-based protections. Mm-hmm. So that's why phishing is so popular. But the second uh, aspect of it is the data exfiltration in your computer and your transactional mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, engagement with the uh, banks and the financial uh, entities, insurance companies, and things like that. The information that you're transmitting back and forth is not protected. Mm. So meaning as it's going over the internet, the data is wide open for someone to siphon. Uh, if you're using your wireless network or your cable network at home, uh, most homes these days have wireless networks. They go all the way out to their swimming pool or their patio or their mm. tech yard and mm-hmm. all the way to the street. Mm. And then can sit out in their car and literally mm. siphon your communication. You're thinking you're transacting, you're paying bills, mm. you're communicating, you're providing all this personal data. Taken right from you, night uh, in your house or sitting outside, literally, uh, basically, uh, you know, grinding this data. Same thing at internet cafes and coffee shops. Wow. Those, um, those free Wi-Fi's are free, right? Um, it, um, they're not free because they want you to, to, you know, to steal your information. They're doing it as a convenience for you. Well, in our motto, so, uh, I always yeah. thought the risk was them just piggybacking on your Wi-Fi signal and slowing your signal down. I thought that's why we need to protect our signal, but you're saying they can tap into our Wi-Fi signal and not only just utilize our Wi-Fi, but that is how they're able to steal our data? Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. Oh, wow. That is not encrypted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're not using what they call VPN for mm-hmm. a virtual private network that basically encapsulates the data that you're communicating between yourself and the other party. That information is 100% viewable to wow. the person who's trying to siphon that data because there's repercussions on that data. Wow. So one of the biggest issues we have in society today is the fact that there's a couple concepts, something called data at rest, data in motion, and data in use. And if you think about that, the information that's stored on the hard drive on your computer or on your phone is data at rest. Mm-hmm. When you're using it, it's data in motion, and you're keying in social security numbers, right? That data is wrong in motion, you know, uh, um, because a lot of that is data in use, and when you're transmitting, it's data in motion. Those are three different um, avenues where thieves can get to your data. So if someone steals your laptop and the information isn't encrypted, okay, they have access to all your data at rest. All right, so they can steal our data when it's at rest, when it's in motion, and if it's not encrypted is really how they're able to do that. So let's talk about that um, raw data, Armando, of so what can the average person do to make sure that their data are not siphoned off in transit with someone tapping into their Wi-Fi? So, for instance, uh, one of the recommendations that's been around for a while now is a lot of people have a tendency to name the, uh, the ID for their network, the SSID, something that's really easy. Like if you say, hey, the Roberts Family Wi-Fi Network, right? That idea is being broadcast, mm. right? It's being broadcast out in the open. So if I'm traveling or if I sit outside with my phone or with my, one of my devices or my laptop, I can see the Roberts family Wi-Fi. It says, oh, that's the Roberts family. Mm. Oh, really? I, I, I want to target their Wi-Fi. Mm. So one of the things you can do is to not broadcast the SSID to your, to your Wi-Fi network and hide it. Uh, basically, um, you have to give that information to someone. So that's one way to do it. The second way to do it is to not call it something that obviously identifies your family or you as an individual, not Sarah's Wi-Fi network or Bobby's you know, Wi-Fi network. Give it some name that's completely abstract that doesn't use your address, your name, or any personal identifying information. And if someone's specifically targeting you or um, – it makes it harder for them mm-hmm. to say, okay, I don't know. I don't know what their Wi-Fi network is, right? I don't know whose Wi-Fi network this is. 
So that's one way to do it, is to make it obscure completely so it's not advertising itself, or to give it a name that obscures it so it doesn't identify you with that network. Mm-hmm. So that's one way to protect your, the, your use of Wi-Fi. Second, let's say you, you do obscure the name or you give it a name that doesn't personally identify. The other thing is to use VPNs. Uh, there are a number of companies out there that manufacture what they call virtual private networks. And what it is is sometimes you hear the term tunneling. You, if you're using a VPN, um, it encrypts and protects your data as it, as from your computer or your phone to its destination. So it makes it harder for a regular thief to who's not going to spend the time to try to hack into that encryption to get to your data. They're just going to keep moving in terms of the average. So that's another way to protect your information while it's in transit. Mm-hmm. And so Most laptops today mm-hmm. have encryption software, like the Apple computers, have a default setting that says, encrypt my hard drive, mm. encrypt my storage. The reason that setting is there is in case your laptop gets stolen, you have the extra added measure that, okay, you've stolen my laptop, but my data is going to be incredibly hard to, to get to because it's encrypted. And as we all know, um, Apple makes some of the strongest encryption um, data, um, well, capabilities, rather, I should say, mm-hmm. with, whether it's their phone or their laptop. So it's not impossible, but it's next to impossible, unless you're a nation state, you know, and you have all the resources and the computing power mm-hmm. that's going to take to unencrypt right. that data. Well, listeners, I'm speaking with cybersecurity expert, and it's quite obvious he's an expert, Armando Say, and we're just talking about uh, all the ways that we can be vulnerable uh, in cyberspace for someone to steal our personal data, our personal identity, um, and tap into our financial resources and, and other, other things about us. Uh, so let's talk about that, Armando is so here's this bad guy sitting out in their car siphoning off our wi-fi getting our data we don't have it encrypted what are they doing with our data who who are these folks and what what's the true goal well in the cyber industry um we're always thought that there's a number of different what we call threat actors or actors um there's your hacktivists there are Mm -hmm. people who are hacking uh, specifically for the purpose of some social cause, right? They are against something or for something, and they're hacking against whatever that entity is that's infringing on what they believe passionately about, you know, whether it be the environment or politics or something like that. Then there are nation-state actors. Those are hackers that are sponsored by governments. Mm-hmm. Typically, those actors have very powerful sets of tools and resources that are used to hack election databases, the Census Bureau, credit bureaus, um, mm. and they have the ability technologically to do a lot of damage because they can hide themselves. They're in a location, typically overseas, where they cannot be extradited into the United States, um, and all they have to do is be lucky once, you know, and, mm. uh, and exfiltrate data from, you know, organizations like Equifax. We have some of us may remember the Sony hack and how much damage mm-hmm. that did to Sony Corporation. Uh, and, you know, the rumor is, and I think it's pretty legitimate, that it was the North Koreans that hacked that because they were offended by the movie on, Kim, you know, on their mm-hmm. leader uh, that they did not want it to come out and they wanted to teach Sony a lesson. Um, and look at the amount of damage that did to Sony. So, and there are other types of actors, and uh, there are lone wolf sort of actors mm-hmm. that are just there that are sometimes hired by individuals in this country or in other countries says, I'm going to pay you to develop phishing schemes against a targeted demographic or an area of interest or you know, a group of it that I have an interest in, and I want you to craft uh, cyber attacks against them and steal their data, and then I'm going to do something with that information, mm-hmm. whether it be to sell it on the dark net, 
most of us are now seeing the commercials on the dark net. People are selling these services that will search for your Social Security number or personally identifiable information out on the dark web. And that's where the trading of these tools and this information is prolific. Um, that's where the money is made for these criminals. A Social Security number is worth mm. X amount of dollars. You know, credit card number is worth another X amount of dollars, and so on and so forth. Wow. So, again, you know, for me as a psychologist, uh, it, it's fascinating to me and it's disturbing to me because just someone stealing your physical belongings out of your car they steal your purse and you know the inconvenience that that causes you um, that's just feels like a violation but to actually um, use this technological knowledge and expertise for evil basically to wreak havoc in someone's life it's just so hard to understand why someone would do that, but it, it basically sounds like it's a profit motive. They're being paid to do it. At least the lone wolf actor is being paid for their services, uh, and so it's just another day at work for them. Absolutely. There's, there's typically a profit motivation to it um, in, in the consumer-based uh, or even in the intellectual property, you know, where plans for new computers and new technology mm. are stolen from U.S. corporations. That's for profit or economic advantage, typically from a nation state or a competitor, mm -hmm. you know, that happens. You know, and then there's the relationship hacking, you know. Um, mm -hmm. Early on, uh, I got out of this, but I was in a bit of a business where I was just getting tons of calls from ex-wives and mm. boyfriends and girlfriends saying, my boyfriend hacked my phone mm. and I'm trying to prove it and they stole my pictures or other data. Can you stop it? Can you help me? Or I would get desperate calls from parents who... They knew that their kids or suspected that their children were involved in things that were nefarious or not correct, and they were trying to get access to their, you know, their the phones, you know, by putting actually, really or not, uh, tools that would normally be used by a hacker. But this was to inform the parent about wow. what their kids were communicating about, either on their phone or on their computers. Mm -hmm. And let's so talk about that. Is yeah, let's talk <laughs> about that, Armando. So mm -hmm. uh, I interviewed a woman uh, on my program, uh, Darius Chisholm, and she's a Pittsburgh-based TV news anchor, and she had naked pictures taken of her by a boyfriend without her consent, and then after she broke up with him, he later shared these photos publicly and was even blackmailing her, trying to manipulate her to get her back into the relationship with him. And so he was he was using the Internet uh, to post. He created a website, posted these photos, was sending the link and sending photos to different people in her life. In her life. And uh, she's speaking publicly about it now and even making a documentary about it because it's been so hard uh, to get justice in the criminal justice system, let alone to get the images taken down. So we see um, uh, cyber porn, sexting, uh, cyber sexual harassment. Um, uh, we see those things happening to just average everyday people. And then there's um, what's called catfishing, where someone steals an image, usually off of social media, and, and takes on that person's identity, and then enters into relationships with other people as if they're you. And so uh, they've stolen your photos, stolen your name, and that now they're having these relationships virtually. Uh, talk about how, how, how devastating that can be and um, how we do um, recover from that. And we'll, we'll probably carry over uh, the break and continue the conversation. But talk about what this is like for folks. Well, it's, it's devastating. It's similarly to having your identity stolen and your, someone going out and making loans. Once the information is recorded digitally, um, 
it can be exponentially exploited across multiple platforms across the Internet. And you're correct, the, the ability to take it down. You have to know all the places, you know, where mm-hmm. it is. If it's stored on servers and Internet service providers and platforms that are overseas, those, and those are out of reach typically of U.S. You know, law enforcement. Uh, fortunately, most states and at the federal level, there's legislation and there are laws that are now you know, definitely coming on the books, and there are many of them on the books, that um, essentially provide for very stiff consequences mm-hmm. uh, for folks who essentially do this cyberbullying or this sexual exploitation of, of, of a partner. Obviously, the fundamental thing that I always counsel young people about is like, you can avoid it first by never allowing someone to take a picture of you. If you don't control that information, once they have it uh, on their property and their phone, they can they can take it and they proliferate it for money and you know can extort you with it, which is it is illegal or broadcast it. But but once it's out there, the you know the you know the, the recourse that you have may give you some degree of satisfaction, but the embarrassment, the loss of reputation, as we call it in cyber. Uh, is major at that point. The damage has kind of been done Hmm. um, once the information's out there. So what we always tell people is you're going to be ashamed of something you're posting today or a picture that you're posting five years from now, ten years from now. Don't ever put it out there because it lives out there forever once it's indexed. There are ways to take it down, but it's never really truly gone. It Mm -hmm. lives out there in cyberspace forever and ever and ever, and it can be found uh, at some point by someone and it right. can come back to haunt you. Yes, and, and let's let's continue talking about that over the break because that's really where it's at, Armando, is prevention, is teaching young people and even adults, you know, things we think adults would never do. we got to talk to them about that too. Don't you take a picture of yourself and send it to someone. Don't have it on your phone where someone can break into your phone and steal it. Uh, And certainly when we post things, make sure that uh, we're very certain that we want this information out there forever because pretty much that's how long it lasts. Well, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we'll hear more from our cybersecurity expert, Armando Say. Stay with us. We'll be back. Schools are increasingly adopting 21st century learning strategies. However, safety largely remains absent from the conversation and fragmented efforts continue allowing for security gaps. Studies show effective learning can only exist when students and teachers feel safe. As the industry leader providing innovative educational solutions for more than 58 years, School Specialty has created the 21st Century Safe School, which aligns next generation learning best practices with proven safety solutions focused on the mental, physical, and emotional well-being of every student, teacher, and school employee. From early childhood solutions to advanced training for teachers and administrators, the 21st Century Safe School is the most complete and comprehensive approach available to schools and universities. As a parent, you have every right to demand that your child is afforded the safest environment. Take action today by calling us at 877-878-5800 and learn more about this innovative approach at SSIGuardian.com. Hi, I'm Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark. Do you ever make changes, but after a few days, weeks, or even months, you slip back into your old behaviors and patterns? If you want something different, you've got to do something different. Yet most people won't do what's required to experience the lasting change they say they want. Why? Because change is hard, it's scary, and it comes at a cost. If you're ready for change, join me for a one-day, do-something-different-for-a-change personal transformation retreat. 
In this intensive yet intimate retreat, you'll learn fundamental principles and strategies for lasting change and transformation and craft a customized plan that you can put into action right away. Contact me today to schedule your own private VIP Do Something Different for a Change personal transformation retreat. Go to drpegradio.com slash retreat. Welcome back, everyone. This is Living Well with Dr. Peg. I'm your host, Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark, and thank you for joining us today. My guest is cybersecurity expert Armando Say, and he's sharing such important information that we all need to be aware of. Even if you don't have a cell phone and a laptop, your data are out there and uh, vulnerable uh, to cyber attacks. And so, Armando, thank you so much for sharing how we can, uh, what the what those vulnerabilities are and how we can stay safe online in cyberspace. Thank you for having me. And uh, listeners, if you want to share this episode with a friend or learn more about Armando Say, just go to drpegradio.com for the program archives, and I'll also have a link uh, to Armando if you'd like to reach out and get in touch with him. So, Armando, right before the break, we were talking about how once you post something online, it pretty much is there um, for a very long time, and even if you delete it, that doesn't um, prohibit someone from having seen it in those brief seconds that it was out there. And what folks are doing these days is they're taking screenshots of it. And I imagine experts like yourself, even if you delete it, there are still ways to recover the data, aren't there? Absolutely. Um, Just because you delete it doesn't mean that it's gone. It may Mm. be gone on your device or it may be gone in one instance of Mm. where it was stored. But in today's Internet society, we have the term data science or big data which typically means your data is stored in huge repositories that are replicated and backed up and automatically replicated across multiple servers across the country, potentially outside of the country. And um, it may be gone in one place, but not in another place. And through, uh, you, we've all heard of the cases where the federal government are going to issue a subpoena to someone. Someone thinks something's been deleted, and all mm-hmm. of a sudden it comes back to, to haunt them because the information is still living out there in one form or another. Mm-hmm. So it's really important that as you're using these applications, uh, a lot of these social media applications, you know, a lot of young people think that these applications that uh, delete the information, that the information only lasts for you know, the minute or two that you sent it to someone. Dr. Pag, as you, 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 know, you know, so well appropriately said, um, people screen capture, they mm-hmm. take a picture of it. Okay, now they have it. <laughs> you know, so it's not gone. Right. And they use that screen image and proliferate it out. We, we all know of national broadcasters and politicians that today are regretting things that they've said on Twitter mm. or they posted on social media when they were in college or when their careers were just starting. You know, typically we hear that they are now a different person, but now they're having to defend themselves against things that they wish maybe today that they never said you right. know, way back when. I always tell people, um, just say no. <laughs> you know, don't, don't do don't it. Don't say it. <laughs> yeah, to us as citizens, there are tools out there that can help determine whether data is being exfiltrated or stolen. Corporations are starting to implement those tools. They're called data loss prevention tools. Those tools haven't migrated completely down to the average citizen. Right now, they're more within the purview of government and corporations who are trying to track when data is going out the door to inappropriate places like the cloud storage, like your Google Drive or Mm -hmm. your Dropbox or other types of storage places. A lot of people don't think about that 
either. That data, again, is going to a lot of different places. Like, okay, so where is this data? Well, now you got to say, oh, my God, yeah. you know, I sent it to this person. I stored it here. I emailed it. Um, it's exponential mm-hmm. once it's out there. Mm-hmm. And it, it can be used against us potentially in the criminal justice system, for college admissions, hiring decisions, uh, and even if there are these takedown services um, to, you know, for cyber porn or reputation or brand management, uh, you know, you can have them find your name out there or images and pull them down. But it sounds like um, it, it just multiplies exponentially. And you, it's like um, I heard a rabbi once say uh, that gossip is like uh, cutting open a feather pillow on a mountaintop and letting all those feathers go and then trying to go back later and collect up all those feathers. You're just not going to be able to do it. And it sounds like big data is the same way. Yeah, big data is one of the biggest concerns <laughs> you know, uh, there uh, in the world today. As you know, as you know it's the European Union um, is leading um, out there in the world where they, the GDPR uh, regulation that they put out there, which basically gives their citizens some degree of control over the data. They can opt out of you collecting. You have mm-hmm. the right to question what data do you have on me. And if there's a data breach, um, there's a minimum number of hours where you have to be notified, and there are extreme penalties. Most of us, if you're looking, using any of your electronic uh, Internet uh, applications and things, we've all probably have gotten some sort of GDPR notification. And typically those are the companies that are considered multinational, your Facebooks, your Twitter on your financial organizations that house and store data in more than one location. A lot of these corporations, like I said, their data happens to traverse international um, Internet connections mm-hmm. and, in, and it's stored in international locations. That automatically makes these corporations uh, susceptible to liability under GDPR. Now, we're citizens of the United States. We don't live in the European Union, but... Um, you know, but that those regulations were made. The U.S. typically has trailed when it has come to these types of regulations. We have a freer society. Mm-hmm. Uh, that freedom um, automatically exposes us. If you look at any what it's called Internet of Things, these are the cameras, your your ring cameras, your these devices that we use in our home, your, even your refrigerators is an Internet of Things. The cameras, the traffic cameras, and the toll booths. All these things are generating data on you, okay? Um, and if you look at a map of Europe versus the U.S., you will see that the U.S. is lit up like a really high-powered Christmas tree um, in terms of the density, particularly along the East Coast where you have New York City and you have high populations. In Chicago and L.A., you'll see a little bit more darkness in the more rural areas across the country, but the major population centers around the area are all lit up, and they're literally – folks out there that use that data um, and said the the U.S. is so prolific in its use of the Internet and its use of Internet of Things devices, right, because they make our lives convenient, all of those things make us susceptible to cyber threats. Mm -hmm. And not only are those Internet of Things devices being used against us individually, the the baby monitors and things like that as well, or your GPS in your car, which is hackable, um, but they're also being used to um, put put forth – major in critical infrastructure cyber attacks. There's um, a major attack that happened in Europe where they used all the devices, the Internet of Things devices that were unprotected to basically do denial of service attacks against banks and health insurance. And wow. if you Google that, you'll see that the, uh, the UK was shut down for about a week. Major health organizations or major banks could not transact because they were using these devices out there and then put malware on them. And they, So yeah. basically you have these bots that were just attacking, you know, 
banking infrastructure and health infrastructure wow. in a massive quantity. It's like having an army of, uh, of these bots that yeah. uh, were perpetrating the attack. Crazy. So let's talk about this, be, because I've heard that um, Steve Jobs didn't let his children use uh, computers just freely. And so the people who in invent these devices, we, we ought to look at how they use them and what they allow their children to do. Uh, so I'm curious, your thoughts about these devices like Siri on our phone and Alexa and the Echo Dot. I'm not not promoting any of these products, um, but uh, uh, by example, all those devices in our homes, what are your, as a professional in this field, what are your recommendations around those types of quote unquote smart devices? Should we have them or are they making us too vulnerable or are we throwing the baby out with the bathwater? It's really about how we use them and the kinds of settings that we put in place to protect ourselves. And Dr. Peck, you just said a really important thing. It's about how we use them and the types of settings that we have. Any device that's um, invented by a human um, has a, a weak point. That's what the cyber criminals are looking for. They're scanning these devices and they're understanding them and they're finding the, what we call the vulnerabilities in the devices. Um, as has been in the news, Alexa and some of these devices that are incredible devices, you know, mm -hmm. uh, in terms of making our life more convenient. You can listen to books and recipes and music and communicate with family. Uh, the flip side of that mm -hmm. is when they're vulnerable, and there are always vulnerabilities in them, and as they're discovered and they're exploited, we come to realize how careful we have to be. Um, what I recommend to people is that they're not in use, turn them off. Mm -hmm. The devices are always on, and they're always listening. We've heard of the story of the device that we thought that saying the lead word, I'm going to call it the lead word, you know, I'm going to call the device by name, mm -hmm. but without being specific, hey, um, you know, Bobby, I'm just going to say that term, uh, play mm -hmm. me this music track, or mm -hmm. tell me what the news is today, right, or give me this recipe. Well, um, if that device is always on, right. um, as it was the case in one of the devices that's manufactured by our major company, someone found a vulnerability that said, hey, you don't have to use that lead word to cause it to automatically turn on. Mm -hmm. It had a, a bug in it that, you know, where the device listened and then executed the command. In certain cases, it was going out and buying things. In other cases, it was recording the, the conversation and automatically emailing it to, to people that it had in the directory of people that you were connected to with the device. So what I recommend to people, there's no such thing as an imperfect or 100% secure device. Mm -hmm. um, cybersecurity is perpetual risk observance, per perpetual risk protection and mitigation. It, it's a never-ending thing. It's cyclical. So you're always vulnerable every time you use something. So don't ever think that there's a 100% solution. The other advice I give to people is look at the terms of use on these devices, the apps that you're using both on the Internet and on your phone. If you read those carefully, and most of us don't typically, we're just, we were so eager to use the app for its convenience and what it offers us in, in our life that we don't realize what it's telling us about what it can do with our data and the information. Hey, I can sell this information. Maybe I'll anonymize it, um, which means they'll take out the personal details so they can't be associated with you. But how do you know that they're going to anonymize it or that data doesn't get hacked before they have an opportunity to take your personal information out? Mm. And we talked about financial data. And Dr. Peggy, you being a healthcare professional, uh, PHI, personal health information, is also highly hackable mm. um, and highly coveted uh, because as we transact the daily aspects of taking care of our health, going to visit doctors, what are we providing? That Not only are we providing data that could compromise our reputation if you're 
you know, if you happen to be susceptible to a sexually transmitted disease. But what about if, if you know, the financial information that you're providing, you, you know, health and financial information are transacted together. Mm-hmm. You put those two together, those are powerful pieces of information. That information can also be used to prejudge you um, um, as an individual. And that's what big data is. Unfortunately, uh, if not used properly and not properly regulated, we're at the beginnings of having to really think about it. Uh, all this data that's freely collected by you, and because you need to go through the toll booth, you need to park, you need to drive city streets, yeah. you need to walk from one restaurant to another, you're being surveilled by cameras and sensors right. and every credit card transaction. And, and, and now that information is building a digital profile. Yeah, and, and that's where it's being taken without our permission, per se, or maybe we, we accepted the terms of use but didn't really pay attention to it. But there's also, we, we voluntarily give up so much data. I'm thinking of the geotagging uh, features on social media, mileage tracking, uh, map my run <laughs> types of apps, Fitbit. We're voluntarily giving up that information. We don't have to worry about a camera on a light post on the corner capturing where I am because I've already told my device and all thousand of my friends where I am. So talk about how, how, how we need to be more responsible with those types of um, uh, apps as well. Yes, absolutely. And, and unfortunately, we're entering the era um, because of some of the things that have happened with Facebook where they thought they were protecting the data or the data wasn't being sold or being used inappropriately. And of course, we all know that they discovered that the data was being used inappropriately, unbeknownst to them or beknownst to them, whichever side of the coin you want, you're on with respect to that particular data breach. But we have to um, use and request um, that these providers, um, as a country and as individuals and as citizens, provide us with more privacy protections. On your phone, you have a thing that says, you know, don't track me or don't, I'm going to turn off the geolocation. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one way to... Um, prevent your privacy. Your phone is always telling. As long as your phone's geolocation uh, is on, which you'll get the apps that say, hey, turn that on so I can more accurately tell you where you need to be or more accurately, you know, provide information. It's also sending information mm-hmm. out about you, you know, um, until you turn that, turn that off. And so sometimes you just need to ignore that. Mm-hmm. But what we need to do is to use our collective voices to encourage these major companies that are, are providing this convenient you know, set of applications for us, but to also give us the tools to protect and increase the ability to protect our privacy. Facebook has been doing it. Twitter has been doing it. But we're, we have a long way to go. Mm-hmm. Some of it, unfortunately, is based on trust that we, you know, these are the things that they give you to opt out of, but they're not strong enough, frankly. And, mm-hmm. and we, we've seen that within the last year or so, the kind of data that's proliferated about our politics in right. terms of how we're voting and what we're thinking, right, through these ads and things that collected information. And they were sold to a company in Europe and then used it there, and then they turned it back on, on us oh, as citizens. Right. Well, you know? So it's very important mm-hmm. that we, 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 we understand these apps Absolutely. And the privacy setting. Absolutely. Well, let's talk about um, something that we all can take responsibility for, and that's our passwords. <laughs> um, do we really need to make our passwords longer? Do we really have to change them as frequently as we get prompted to at work? Uh, How important are strong passwords and really how frequently should we be changing them? You should be changing your passwords as frequently um, as possible in terms of your comfort level, in terms of if you've gone overseas and you've used the credit card app on your phone and you you were connecting to an overseas uh, wireless network or in a wireless cafe, that could have been siphoned off. Mm. Um, when you come back, you should probably change those settings or change those settings while you're on your trip. 
at least once or twice such that you can't be taken advantage of while you're on that trip because you've, you've made it harder for the thief to then begin to use that information. So it's very important. It's one of the most important things we can do. One of the things that's evolving, both personally as well as corporately, is what we call multi-factor authentication. Right now, it's what's popular is two-factor authentication, but where basically it's a password and then another piece of information to make sure that, hey, you, you are who you are. You will notice that some credit cards will say, hey, you just did a transaction. We're not sure it's you. They won't just rely on your password. They're going to send you something else to say, answer this question, mm-hmm. you know, mother's maiden name or some other personally identifying information to verify that you are who you are. Multi-factor authentication adds even more layers to that. It's something that you know, you know, something that you have, you know, those kinds of things. And there's other components to it. So the idea is to add to that. But we're quickly entering the biometric world. It's both going to be used against us in terms of facial recognition, uh, China and, you know, the Europe, you know, Places like London or some of the most, and in, in, uh, the Middle East are some of the most highly surveilled societies, and like Abu Dhabi and Dubai, because of the proliferation of cameras that can now do facial recognition and entire that recognition to information on your passport and other information. But so we have to be very careful, mm-hmm. you know, about that. But it's so biometrics, while they can be used, can be very beneficial um, for protecting us. They can also be used to automatically alert someone in some city or some world or some place that we're traveling, hopefully enjoying ourselves, that says, hey, this person is in this country. Wow. Um, so, 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 yeah, so Armando, there, there's just so much, um, <laughs> just so much we need to be aware of. I appreciate the depth and breadth of your expertise. Uh, you've provided us with some important insights into cybersecurity and given us some practical strategies that we can put in place and practice on a regular basis to keep ourselves safe. Thank you so much for being on the program with me today. Thank you so much. And listeners, be smart when it comes to your data and cybersecurity. My guest has been Armando Say, and I'm Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark, reminding you to live well. We hope you've enjoyed this presentation of Living Well with Dr. Peg. For more information or to contact Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark about her mental health or consulting services, please visit her webpage at drpegradio.com.